today as we're gathering together under God's word. Um, we can tell by looking uh, at our Bibles and what we just read together uh, that we are almost done studying the very famous uh, sermon, one of the most famous sermons of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And so this week, uh, we, we, have, we have this week, and then next week there's one final encouragement to build our lives uh, on the houses, uh, our houses uh, on the rock, and then it'll be over. Jesus' sermon is officially over. And so in today's section of Scripture, with Jesus kind of rounding third base and headed to home, uh, as Matt just read for us, we see Jesus kind of sum up the entire sermon thus far in, in verse 12, and then he calls for a response Right? Jesus didn't want those people who were listening to his sermon simply to be hearers of what he was saying and then go on living their lives kind of however you want. Maybe admiring what Jesus said, like, oh, Jesus said that. That was nice. Uh, rather, he wants them to think about their lives. He, he wants to make them think about a decision that they need to be made. So he implores them at the very end, this is what we saw uh, in verses uh, 13 and 14, when he says, enter by the narrow gate. That's what we're seeing. He's imploring all of those who are listening uh, to make a decision to change the entire course of their lives as they weigh everything that Jesus has just said. So his goal is that they would follow him, that they would obey him. Jesus is after their allegiance. And so my prayer uh, is, is that as we walk through today's text, that we will see that these things are not just for that original audience that are sitting here on the mountain this day listening to Jesus preach, uh, nor is it just for those first readers of Matthew's account Rather, they are for all of us who hear the words of Jesus. There is a response that is necessary from all of us that is laid on us in the text, which will shape the eternal destiny of our souls. Thus, as we are walking into this part of Jesus' sermon, right here at the very, very end, we will have to make a decision. We will choose. We'll choose a gate to go through. We'll choose a path to walk down. And we will choose a teacher to listen to. But the question is, will it be the right path? Will it be the right gate? Will it be the right teacher headed towards eternal life? Or will it be the wrong gate, the wrong path, the wrong teacher that leads to eternal damnation and judgment? That's what's before us today. But before we get to a decision, we see that Jesus first in verse 12, he will sum up the entire sermon thus far by laying down one glorious rule that sums up absolutely everything that he's been saying in the sermon so far. And this one little line has become, I think, probably the most famous line from this sermon, right? We call it the golden rule. And it sums up all of Jesus' sermon, but not just that, but he also says it is a fulfillment of all of the law and all of the prophets, that's a weighty statement. Like if Jesus hadn't been the one to say it, you'd be like, I'm calling it. That's not true. But Jesus says, no, no, this line is a summation of all the law and all of the prophets as they teach us as God's people how we are called to live out our life in the nitty gritty of life. Thus, as one pastor, Matthew Henry noted, Christ came to teach us not only what we are to know and to believe, but also what we are to do. What we are to do, not only towards God, but also towards men. Not only towards our fellow disciples, those of our party and persuasion, but towards men in general, all with whom we have to do. He wrote, the golden rule of equity is to do to others as we would that they should do to us. And in thinking about this golden rule, it seems really elementary, doesn't it? Like, we teach that to our littlest of kids, don't we? Teach them how you want them to teach you, or treat you, right? So... Treat them how you want them to treat you. It's so easy. 
but it's also all pervasive. And if you really start thinking about it, it's impossible to follow. Just impossible. Right? We have this conversation in our household all the time. We have boys who are six and eight, and they are best friends and the worst of enemies. They are brothers. And kids, for all of you, this is the kind of command from Jesus that is really important for you to learn, especially if you're a Christian and you want to please Jesus with your life. But kids, it is also very practical for you. This is a very practical thing that Jesus is commanding you to live out. So in our household, as I'm sure it is in yours, it practically means that if you wished that your brother or your sister would do something really nice for you, then you should treat them like you want to be treated. You should do something nice to them. You should serve your brother and sister. You should take care of them. You should put away their toys. You should bring them that drink, get them that food. It's pretty easy to understand. But it's also hard because it also means that when your brother or sister does something mean to you, you are commanded not to respond back in anger towards them. They hit you, you don't hit back. Why? You don't like them to hit you, so you don't hit them back. It is a very hard thing to do. Kids, is that right? I can't hear you. Is that hard to do? When your brother or sister hits you, for you to not respond back and hit them back? Is that hard? It's incredibly hard. This is exactly, though, what Jesus is calling you to do, to respond with grace and kindness. It's difficult, right? Now, parents, we might remind our kids of this rule often, and we ought to, but we also might be tempted to think that it's easy to do. In fact, we might get frustrated with our kids when they do not obey this golden rule. Parents, yes and amen. Yes, we do. We get very upset with them. Why do you treat your brother like that? When he does that to you, don't respond like this to him. Instead, do what Jesus said. But if we were to take that and apply it into our own lives, we see how really difficult it is. For example, think about the last fight you had with your spouse. Whew. I just got a little bit more uncomfortable, didn't it? Treating them like you wish they would treat you. And when they say something snarky or rude, you are commanded to not yip back at them rudely. You ever said this out of your mouth? I wouldn't have done that if you had not done this. See how hard it is to follow this rule from Jesus? It's simple and yet also very, very hard to actually live out. And we are commanded as Christians to speak words of kindness back to one another, to serve people, to do for them what we wish they would do for us. It's not so easy. And if that weren't hard enough, we also notice it's not just in our own households that we're commanded to live this way. It's to be also seen in the household of faith with other Christians and with our neighbors and our grumpy coworkers and our employees, with our clients and our bosses. Thus, if we were to systematically walk through all the commands of Jesus thus far in Matthew and tease out all of the law and prophets, all the Old Testament as well, we would see that this little phrase could almost sum up every single one of God's commands for us. That's what Jesus is saying. Whether it's anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, lying, adultery, murder, theft, dishonoring, or maligning others, all of those actions come from hearts that aren't treating other people as we wish to be treated. Thus, the very command of Jesus is we are to treat others as we wish to be treated. We are to love them practically, our friends, Our family members, our enemies, complete strangers, Justin Trudeau. And we are to do so practically with our thoughts and our words and our hands. See how hard it is? Commenting on this, Charles Spurgeon noted, he said, the sum of the Decalogue, the Pentateuch, and the whole sacred word. Oh, 
that men acted on it. He said, and then there would be no slavery, there'd be no war, there'd be no lying, no robbing, all would be justice and love. What a kingdom is this that has such law? This is the Christian code. This is the condensation of all that is right and generous. It's also our great law, as J.C. Ryle explains. It does not merely forbid all petty malice and revenge, all cheating and overreaching. It does much more. It settles a hundred different points, which in a world like this are continually arising between people. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for conduct in various specific cases. And it just sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. Thus, Jesus is saying that our entire lives as Christians ought to be marked by this command. So, How are we doing at this command? Are you living this way? And if we were honest, we would say no. It's impossible to live this way, to obey this command. We have all been disobedient. It's impossible to do so flawlessly, we know, because of the fall. For because of that first sin, we are all totally depraved, which doesn't mean that we are as sinful as we possibly could be, but it does certainly mean that we are tainted with sin, bent and broken in every possible way. Mentally, emotionally, physically, sexually, volitionally, we are, every single one of us, self-indulgent, self-focused narcissists. We think about ourselves all the time. Thus, who can live to this high standard that Jesus is laying out here? And the answer is nobody. We're all lawbreakers when it comes to this command, and we can never live this way on our own. And that's the point. The point is that we are all lawbreakers who rightly deserve the holy and righteous judgment of God against our many sins. And that's why we are all in such a desperate need for a Messiah. That's why Jesus, God the Son, came and lived the life that we ought to have lived, a life of perfect obedience to all of the law and the statutes of God, See, Jesus' life was marked by this command, and he's the only one whose life was. And then he, who knew no sin, the perfect one, stood condemned in our place, facing the wrath of the Father, as we sang a moment ago, in our place, dying the death that we deserve to die, so that we who are guilty might be pardoned, as he was our substitute. And then three days later, when he rose from the dead, he conquered over Satan's sin and death, offering forgiveness of sin to all who would come and to believe upon him as their Savior, God, and King as they repent from their sins and believe upon Christ. Thus, Jesus alone is the only one who could faithfully follow this golden rule, and he did it for us. In our place, he was faithful, and in our place, condemned, he stood. Both of those are drastically important for us as Christians. So that now, those of us who are Christians, who are sealed and empowered by the Spirit, we can now live like this. Verse 12 can and should mark our lives in growing ways. We can genuinely and selflessly love others as we mortify, as we kill our flesh and serve other people. We can do for them what we wish others would do for us. We can count others as more significant than ourselves, looking to their interests above our own, as we read in Philippians chapter 2. But only because we have this modeled in Christ, and we have the Spirit empowering us to do that. Thus, previously, we're unable to live our lives like this, but now, by grace, we can. But it's also important to say that, that we will never obey this command perfectly this side of glory. 
Thus, when we sin in disobeying Jesus' command, we can ask for forgiveness. We can repent, turn away from selfish, selfishness. We can thank God for Jesus' perfect righteousness that is ours by faith and ask God for help to empower us to live out this command. Then we can walk in all these good works that have been prepared for us by the Father. Thus, for non-Christians, they may love the golden rule. They may even have it plastered up inside of their business or inside of their home. But as they do so, it is damning to them. For they cannot live this way. It can never be fulfilled. But for Christians, we know that we have Christ's perfect righteousness who has fulfilled that on us. And we have been transformed. Thus, this is a healthy diagnostic question. Are our lives marked by this spirit-empowered, gospel-entrenched, Jesus-glorifying way of living or not? Are we growing in our sanctification, our growth in holiness, to where we are, we are reflecting this more and more with every passing year? And if not, maybe it's a good pause to reflect and consider if we are actually in Christ or not. Because this is the fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives as Christians. And if it is completely absent, then maybe we should have no confidence in our profession of faith. In fact, it might be a wake-up call that we actually are not in Christ. So evaluating your own life, does this mark your life? At home, with your wife and your kids, in the household of faith, in your neighborhood, or maybe your workplace. One of the most humbling things that you could do is ask those who know you the best, is my life marked by this? Brothers, that would be a good conversation to have with your wife, to ask her, honestly, assess your life. Do you see more of this in my life with every passing year? Maybe you can ask a best friend or someone that you've known for a while that really knows you. Do you see this growing in my life? This concern for others? Or am I selfish? Then in verses 13 to 14, after summing up this sermon and really all of the Old Testament in one line, Jesus begins to wrap up his sermon, leading us to that part of the sermon where every preacher calls for a decision to be made in light of everything they have been preaching thus far. And Jesus is the best preacher, so he, this is what he does. He, he begins to bring the sermon to a close, and he focuses on the inevitable decision that every single person must make. Will they choose to become a citizen of God's kingdom and inherit eternal life, or will they remain a citizen of this fallen world and receive damnation? The whole sermon has been working up to this critical, crucial moment. And Jesus explains a situation like this in verses 13 to 14, that there are two gates. There is the narrow gate, which leads to a hard way that leads to life, and few find it. And there's a wide gate, which leads to an easy way that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Thus, according to Jesus, there are only two gates available which lead to two different ways with two different destinations. There aren't hundreds of paths. There are not thousands of ways to God, no matter what the world tells you. Rather, there are only two. Also, it's important to note that there isn't a middle path. No, rather, it's like we are in a fork in the road, and we have to pick a direction. That's the kind of imagery that Jesus is using here. That's the decision that needs to be made at this point in Jesus' sermon. It's decision time for everyone. And as we examine those different paths, we notice a few specifics about them. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, but then he describes the other gate first. So he wants you to know which one to avoid. He wants to warn you against it. So enter this one, but be careful. There's another one. Don't follow this one. 
And we see through Jesus' descriptions why people are lured into this broad path. Firstly, he says the gate is wide. Then he says the way is broad. And thirdly, there are many travelers on that path, and so it seems relatively safe. And thinking about the gate being wide, Matthew Henry notes that there, the lure here, the, the bait here to get you to go down this path, is that you will have an abundance of liberty by going through this wide gate. It stands wide open to tempt you to go right on your way. Thus, you may go in at this gate with all of your lusts about you. It will give no check to your appetites, no check to your passions. You can walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. It gives room enough for everyone. We also note that it is a broad way. There's nothing to hedge those in that walk in it, but they just wander endlessly. It's a very broad way. You can, you can walk closer over here, closer over there, along with those people or these people over here. It's very broad, meaning there is a choice of sinful ways that are all contrary to each other, but they're all on this big path together. Then we note that there's a, the other lure for this path is that you'll have an abundance of company on this way. There are a lot of people on this path. Many are there who go in at this gate. There are many who walk in that path. It's natural for us to want to go with the crowd, and in the direction of a path that is wide and easy and doesn't demand too much from us. I notice that when I'm driving somewhere and I have the option of going on this road to get home or that road to get home. And this road, if there's been a lot of snow, I do not want to go down it. Unless I can tell other cars that are bigger than me have gone down it first. You know what I mean? It is a difficult path. I'm like, nope, not going that way. I'm going the easy path that everyone has gone through down this way. And the same thing is true with us spiritually. We look at the hard path and we say, ah, it's not that traveled. It's a little hard. Don't think I want that. Why don't I just stay on the easy path? But they actually don't lead to the same place at all. They just promise that they do. And we, we wouldn't know that, that simply from looking at the gate or the path or the people in the path that it's headed towards destruction. But Jesus warns us that this road doesn't lead to eternal life, but rather, as I said, to destruction. And the word destruction, by the way, is, is not a word, no matter what the pastor on social media tells you, it is not a word that means annihilation or extinction. Rather, it refers to a total loss or ruin. A synonym of this is the word damnable. And by definition, it could refer to physical, spiritual, or eternal destruction. John MacArthur helps us understand this point a bit further. He writes, it's not the complete loss of being, but the complete loss of well-being. It's the destination of all religions except the way of Jesus Christ, and it's the destination of those who would follow any way but his. It's the destination and destiny of condemnation, of hell, and of everlasting torment. Thus, this gate that leads to this way, although it claims to be easy, is anything but. Thus, Jesus warns us, beware of this gate. It leads to everlasting destruction in the lake of fire, as we read in Revelation chapter 20, as the individual reaches the end of this path ultimately to come under the righteous wrath of a holy God. Thus, this path promises ease and comfort and life, but we need to be warned that the end of it actually is destruction. It's the path of folly. In fact, what Jesus is doing here is the same thing that we see in the book of Proverbs. There's a way that leads to wisdom, and there's a path that leads to folly. Beware, my son. Don't go the path of folly. This is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. He's letting you know it will lure you in with accessibility, open-mindedness, crowds, and creature comforts. It will cost nothing. It will require nothing of you. There's no straight doctrine. There's, no, there's nothing that it will challenge you with ever. Don't you want to come this way? 
But we notice as Jesus' sermon begins to wrap up that the wide gate is not the gate he wants you to enter. In fact, it is the path that leads to judgment. He doesn't want us to lead down the easy path that will lead to eternal damnation. That's not the goal of his sermon. In fact, the whole goal of his sermon is he's, as we see here, is he's commanding the listeners of the sermon, don't go that way. Enter this gate. Enter by the narrow gate. And this word enter is a word that demands definite and specific action. There's a goal he wants you to do. Enter this gate, he says. Thus, as one pastor noted, the command is not to admire the gate, to not look at the gate and say, oh, that gate is beautiful. What a great, that is sturdily built. That is a wonderful gate. No, 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 that's not the goal. The goal is to enter the gate. That's the aim of Jesus' preaching. Not that we hear lofty and wonderful laws to live by and obey them, thus finding our salvation in our own ability to follow the rules of the kingdom. No, that's not the answer to the catechism question we just asked. No, the laws of the kingdom are for kingdom citizens, for those who enter by the narrow gate to know how we must live now as citizens of this kingdom as we're walking this narrow pathway. Thus, Jesus is here standing at the crossroads. It's, it's like he's standing there with you, and he's, he's pointing out to you. He's saying, there's two gates. There's this one, and there's this one. There's the narrow one, and there's the broad one. Choose this one. It's like he's standing there preaching, calling you to the right gate that you might see it. Thus, we must decide. We must choose to obey Jesus' words and walk down this path the decision is before us. Do you remain a citizen of this fallen world, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of your own flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and enter into the wrath of God when you die or choose to enter the narrow gate and become a citizen of God's kingdom and inherit eternal life? But it is a decision that we all must answer for ourselves. Your spouse cannot answer this question for you and your parents cannot Your grandparents cannot and your pastors cannot. You, my friend, must make a decision. See, the original audience, they're wrestling through this question as as Jesus is also wrapping up his sermon. Will they follow Jesus on the straight and narrow or will they turn their backs on him and walk down the easy, wide path? And those who first received Matthew's gospel as they're reading through the same sermon and hearing it preached in their gatherings, they have to wrestle with the same question, the same decision. And we must, as we come to this text, process through the exact same thing. We must decide Which path will we choose? Jesus is commanding us to enter the narrow gate. Thus, a decision needs to be made. Will we follow him? Friends, and this is the most critical, the most crucial question that you will ever be asked. Will you follow Jesus? But then we see in verses 15 to 20 that Jesus' voice isn't the only one standing there at the crossroads. It's not as if Jesus is the only preacher standing there in front of the narrow gate and the broad gate, beckoning you to the narrow gate. His voice isn't the only one there. No, we see in verses 15 to 20 that there are competing voices calling out to us. They're the voices of the false prophets who are trying to mislead you. They don't want you to go down the narrow gate. They want you to go down the broad gate to destruction. Seems counterproductive. So just as there is this false gate leading to a false way that ends in eternal judgment, there are false teachers and preachers who point us away from the true gate and towards the false one. And so it's good that Jesus warns us of this, beware of this, because if we're not warned, we might think that every preacher and teacher that we hear on CBN is promoting the truth. Friends, 
a much closer attention to what you hear. Not every person who claims to be a pastor or a prophet or an apostle or a preacher on your social media feed is in fact a preacher and a pastor who's a genuine, true one. No, no, we must use discernment as God's people. We are to be watchful. And there have always been false teachers. We read about this a moment ago. But they first came in the garden as the snakes slithered up to Adam and Eve. That was the first false prophet, false preacher. And he beckoned them to try to find true life and becoming like God and choosing for themselves what is good and what is evil. Did God really say, ah, don't trust his judgment. Go this other way. This other path is much better. And they listened to him. And throughout Israel's history, they are warned again by false prophets over and over again. Moses, for example, Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. Do you hear that? The Lord, he prophesies something will come true. It comes true. Then he says, let's follow other gods. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul. Verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you lead in the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Isn't that fascinating in Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 to 5? Isn't it interesting that he's a prophet or dreamer of dream? He gives a sign or a wonder and it comes to pass. If that happened today, we might say, well, this must be of the Lord. He said it would happen, and it came true. So God must be telling us something else. Jesus is saying, beware when that happens. Beware. Don't just listen to them because they said something would come true, and it did. Beware. Just because they have signs and wonders and can cast out demons, beware. Don't just believe whatever it is they say. Beware. We see that on repeat throughout Israel's history as well. False prophets speak false things, striving to lead God's people away. And Jesus warns us that we still have to deal with these false Christs and false prophets like we see in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 and 5. In the scripture for today, we see these false teachers will be successful. Did you notice Jesus said there will be many on that path? There are many there. There are many who listen to them, many who go down this easy path headed towards destruction. And friends, there are no signals or signs along the way that this path leads to destruction. In fact, many wrongly believe they are headed towards the celestial city when, in fact, they are not. Jesus assures them of this, which means that the intention of the heart of the individual does not matter. Let me say that again. The intention of the heart of the individual does not matter. All that matters is have they entered through the narrow gate. That is what matters. They can be as sincere as they want headed towards an eternal hell. Sincerity is not the litmus test of truth. You could sincerely believe that you are a man trapped in a woman's body. My friend, you are wrong. Same thing is true with what we hear in God's word. You are wrong. Sincerity is no litmus test. People on this path have been duped to, lied to, and sent on a path towards hell by these false teachers who are lovers of self, lovers of money, and promoters of false religion. 
Specifically in the context of the sermon, Jesus has in mind the Pharisees and the Sadducees, scribes, those we've talked about previously. But throughout the early church, this wolf vocabulary would be picked up over and over again by the apostles. And one notable example of this was when Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that false teachers would even come up from their own number. From their own eldership, there will come false prophets and teachers out of their own pastors. Which is why Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus later on to combat these false teachers and to stand firm in right doctrine. Thus, through his preaching, Timothy is said to save himself and his hearers. Not meaning that they're salvifically born every single time that, Peter, or that Timothy opens up his mouth and preaches. But rather, through his preaching, the Christians in Ephesus are preserved and persevered by that good grass which nourishes their soul. And they demonstrate that they are true sheep, the flock of God, as they listen to the voice of Jesus, through the voice of his preacher, as he opens up and preaches God's word to them. Thus, Jesus warns us that as we are at this crossroads, with him beckoning us to the straight and narrow, that there will be others who will lead them astray, and they are false. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. But these false teachers are unlike Jesus. They speak falsely. They speak lies like their father, the devil. Notice as well, they don't come in discernible clothing. You can't spot false teachers by a neon glowing sign above their head that just says, false teacher. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Don't listen to me. They don't come up to you and say, hey, I'm Bob. I'm a false teacher. I'm a wolf. Great great to meet you. You're a sheep? Ah, I like sheep. I love sheep, actually. I'm a wolf. They don't do that. That would be nice if they did. They don't. They look like the sheep. They pretend to have the same kind of righteous covering that the sheep do, but it only appears that way externally they look the part, but where it really counts, internally, that's where their real nature is being temporarily concealed. They are, in fact, ravenous wolves. See, prophets are supposed to be good shepherds who tend to God's flock, but these false teachers are false shepherds. They come to the sheep, pretending to belong to them and to do them some good, but in reality, they abuse, malign, and then slaughter and eat the sheep. So we need to be aware, this is not a boogie story told by Jesus of some fantastical person who does not exist. These people are real and they do mean things to the church and they cause us great harm, though they look the part externally. In fact, as we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, they are the kind of men who prophesy in Jesus' name, cast out demons in his name, do many mighty works in Jesus' name, but Jesus does not know them. They do not belong to him. They're false prophets. And thankfully, Jesus gives us a few ways to recognize these false pretenders from the real deal. Jesus tells us that we'll know them by their fruit. Thus, as Jesus explains, we know which fruit comes from which trees, right? So we don't expect to gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. They don't produce these things because that's not what they do. Now, from time to time, one of my apples might fall into a thistle bush, but I don't walk by and say, look, my thistle bush produced an apple. Do you know why? I'm not dumb. My mama didn't raise no fool. I know apples come from apple trees. Right? So, good works are like fruit. They are pleasing to God and profitable to men. Therefore, good fruit is never to be expected from false teachers. Now, you might be saying, well, what if there is good fruit from false teachers? What do you say about that, preacher man? Well, there might be fruit that appears appealing to the eye. It can be plucked and brought home. It can be washed and stored. But when it's eaten, even if it seems sweet to the taste... It can bring a deep sickness into your life that will make you sick and could kill you. In fact, it's like getting food poisoning. Has that ever happened to you? Food poisoning is the worst. 
right? You have a meal, and you think, this meal is wonderful. And then you go home, la-ti-da-da-da, life is good. That night, bam, it hits you. And you're like, oh, man. And then you spend the next, like, three or four days just immovable, right? Like, life goes really badly for you. And then that's when you promise to never, ever go to that restaurant ever again, right? And that's the hard thing is most people, when they get food poisoning, they don't know that they've been poisoned right away. They think it's fine. They can't taste anything bad in it. It doesn't smell funny. But later that night or the next day, the badness becomes visible, and it isn't pleasant. Friends, the same thing is true with false teaching. False teaching might taste good. It might seem to strengthen the body for a time from external views. But what Jesus is saying is that the end result of that false teaching, this bad fruit, is that it leads to eternal death. It is the hallmark of a wide gate and a broad way. And let me tell you, people love false prophets. They love them. They have tickling ears. They, they love what they say. It sounds great. They leave feeling just encouraged all the time. That's all the false teachers want to do. They just, I just want you to be encouraged. Don't sin and stuff. Ah, just be encouraged. Ah, aren't you great? Look at yourself in the mirror every day and say, I am the best. Have a great week. You might leave feeling pretty good about yourself. And you might be on a path headed towards hell and not know it. Because that is the danger of false teaching. It refuses to expose sin and it leaves you in your sin, thinking that you're good enough on your own apart from Christ. Friend, that is a lie from the pit of hell and it will lead you to damnation. Matthew Henry explains this is the hallmark of preachers. These trees, they are barren. This word barren doesn't mean that there's no fruit on the tree. Rather, that the tree is accounted as barren if the fruit isn't good. It doesn't lead to strengthening the body. Thus, we can't just look with our eyes, our natural eyes alone. We might see the effects of something and claim that it was good fruit from this false teacher. So he or she must not have been a false teacher. But if the fruit isn't good fruit, if the effect of the preaching or teaching doesn't lead to eternal life, then it is false fruit. Let's take Mormonism, for example. Someone might be a cocaine addict who is a terrible dad. He might be abusive and a terrible citizen who steals and can't hold a job. But then let's assume this man becomes a Mormon. On the surface, his life might look better. He is reconciled with his wife. His kids grow to love and trust him. He has a stable job and provides for his own needs and the needs of others. And he becomes genuinely kind and generous. Now, overall, from a worldly perspective, it looks as if his religion is producing good fruit in his life. But is it? No. No, it is not. He is on the wide path and he is eating fruit that is leading to his eternal damnation. Externally, his life looks better. It is not. He is worse off. Unequivocally, he is on the wide and the broad way. And in the end, that man will experience the righteous wrath of God for all of eternity future because of his rebellion against God and his choice of going down the wide gate because he has not entered the only true gate. Now, you might say, well, that sounds narrow. That sounds like you're narrow-minded. And Jesus says, well, it is a narrow gate. So, what can you do? If you want the broad gate, it's over there. It doesn't lead anywhere you want to go. Friends, be narrow-minded on the important things. For by doing so, you will save yourself and those who hear you share the gospel with them. So, we must test the fruit of the prophets. Are they a prophet? Are they a true one or a false one? How do we test the fruit? Well, first, we test the fruit of the person. We need to look at their words and their actions. How do they live? 
for how they live will testify against them. As we've mentioned, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were in Moses' chair and they taught the law, but they were proud and covetous, false and oppressive. And Jesus warned the disciples against them and their leaven. Matthew Henry notes again, if men pretend to be prophets and are immoral, that disproves their pretensions. Those are no true friends of the cross of Christ, whatever they profess, whose God is their belly, whose mind, earthly things. Those are not taught nor sent of the Holy God, whose lives evidence that they are led by an unclean spirit. So first, we test their lives. Secondly, we test their doctrine. Do they hold to God's word? Is his word inerrant, infallible, inspired, trustworthy, sufficient, and profitable for all of life and all of godliness? Do they hold God's word dear? Do they hold the gospel tightly, narrowly? Or are they like the foolish Galatians who begin abandoning the gospel that they once held dear? This is crucial because someone could preach false doctrine in things that are essential. They could say something but say nothing at all. They can preach in such a way where they give new definitions to words. They can double speak. And when asked what they mean by certain things they preach, they can assure you that they are not heretical. But if you listen closely to the sermons, you notice something is wrong. And what we see so often today is something that is very old. It's this idea of what is called progressive Christianity. It's one of those things where you can't really nail down a preacher on any specific doctrine. It's kind of like nailing jello to a wall. Good luck. Might be a kind of preacher where you could have a 45-minute conversation simply because you ask them if they believe homosexuality is a sin or not, and they refuse to answer. They speak in circles, and they never land anywhere because they don't actually want to answer the question because they don't want to definitively call something sin and something not sin. Or like one girl I read about recently at a private class in her church with a handful of members, the pastor admitted that he did not view the Bible as inerrant or infallible. He would use those words when preaching, but he gave them different meanings. And he would never preach certain things from the pulpit. And if he did, he worded the sentence in a way where it sounded orthodox, but he changed all the meanings of the words to suit whatever he believed to be true. Friends, this kind of progressive Christianity is full of false prophets whose doctrine begins with, did God really say? And it quickly leads to, there certainly won't be judgment for doing that. They commit the same sin as the garden and prove they are of their father, the deceiver as they deceive and point people down paths of eternal conscious damnation. Thus, as we're wrapping up our time today, I'm going to consider a few things from our text. Firstly, looking at verse 12. Are we treating others as we wish they would treat us in every area of our lives as we demonstrate our allegiance to Christ and as citizens of his kingdom? And where we are not, let us demonstrate our union with Christ by repenting of those areas, asking for God's forgiveness and asking him to help us will and to work for his good pleasure as we give our lives away to serve and love others as we have been served and loved by Jesus. And when you notice someone in your life, your wife or your husband or your kids or someone in, in, in this church, when you see them loving you and serving you in various ways, commend them on it. Thank them for serving you. Oh, thank you for grabbing that from me. Oh, thank you for doing this for me. And then look for ways that you can also serve and love them. Build one another up as God's people. And then the main question that we need to ask ourselves from the text and from reading Jesus' words in this whole sermon really is, have we entered the straight and the narrow path? For my friend, you are there at a fork in the road and you need to decide. In fact, you will decide today which path you will walk down. You will either continue in this path that you have been walking in or you will walk through the straight and the narrow and nobody can make this decision for you. You are here alone. And Jesus is beckoning you to follow him, to pick up your cross and to walk through the narrow gate. Walk through the narrow gate. It will be difficult. 
you will have to trust him every single step of the way. It's narrow, it's difficult, but it's worth it because in its end, it leads to eternal life. So come to Jesus today. Believe in your heart that he has lived the life you ought to have lived, a life of perfect obedience to the commands of the Father, and then stood condemned in your place as your substitute so you can be forgiven for your many sins. Thus he died and rose from the dead so you could be forgiven. So will you come to him today? Listen to his voice. He is the true prophet, the true preacher. Enter the narrow gate. He is the good shepherd. And he will faithfully lead you home. For those of you who are Christians, beware that there are false teachers out there. They will try to lie to you and strive to get you off the narrow path and move you onto the wide path. Just like in Pilgrim's Progress, how he is tempted off of the straight and narrow towards the wide and the broad. So be careful. Legalist is out there. Talkative is out there. They are real. And they're after your souls. So watch your life and your doctrine closely, knowing, knowing that you're almost home. This life, friends, this life is just a vapor. The promised land is calling. Make ready, all you saints, for the kingdom come. No stopping now. We're almost home. Press on. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for the good and kind word that you give us in and through your word. Thank you for your summation of the law and the reminder that we cannot in our own merits and achievement ever fulfill your law perfectly. But thank you that Jesus, you did for us so that we who are guilty sinners might be forgiven and redeemed and restored. Pray God that we would enter through the narrow gate and be given strength and grace and ability and faith to do so. Pray that you would keep us from the path to destruction the gate that is wide, the way that is easy. And when we see those headed down that road, may we call to them, beckoning them to the true and narrow gate. Lord, protect us from false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. Let us test what we hear according to your word. Continue to produce in us and those around us healthy fruit that leads and proves that we belong to you. We love you, God. Help us love you more with every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.